0: We are in a series called First Things, the priority of the Christian life. Um, what are the primary things that should and inform all the important things in the Christian life? That's what we're doing, uh, a series on the first things. We're the very first things. Um, we'll also be putting out material for all community groups throughout the series. So if you, were, if you gathered as a community group last week, you got the series, uh, the um, material on faith this week. It'll be on our topic today, which is discipleship. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. Uh, as Tarek mentioned, our church started eight years ago today. Actually, it was on the 10th. And, um, man, it is, uh, uh, I don't even really have words to say how good God has been to uh, our church community. And, um, yeah, I just don't really have words. I don't have anything written down. I just... Uh, I don't have words, I have like groanings, you know, those sort of things, you're like, oh, God, like that, that's kind of how I feel about this church, in a good way, okay, in a good way, not like, ah, oh. but in a, ah, oh, you know, it's a, it's a good way. I remember meeting people when Ash and I first moved here, and they would ask, you know, why we moved here, like, we moved here nine years ago, they'd ask, you know, what we, what I did, and why we moved here, and I said I was a church planter, and they were like, what is that, like, church planter. What does that mean? And then I, I learned really quick to change my language. I started to say I was a part of a startup church. And they were like, oh, <laughs> cool. Like they immediately got it. Like immediately. <laughs> um, and if people that I met were Christians, uh, or followers of Jesus, they would say, you know, what what is the vision that our church has for the city? What's your vision? And the answer wasn't too complex. It's still not that complex. We would say this. We'd say we are a community following Jesus. And that remains, mostly, partly, uh, remains our vision today, that we are a community following Jesus, seeking renewal in our city. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, and the demands and the invitations that following Jesus has. So, Mark chapter 8, I will read it, and then we will do the same prayer that we did last week that will be up on the screen as well. So, Mark chapter 8, verses uh, 31 through 37. Verse 31. Jesus began to teach them, the the people that were following him, that the Son of Man, which is a moniker that he uses for himself, he, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. He said, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Verse 34. Then he called to the crowd, the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What good is it for someone to gain the world, yet forfeit their soul? This is uh, God's words. Let's pray this together out loud, what's on the screen. What we know not, may you teach us. What we have not, may you give us. What we are not, may you make us, in Christ's name. Lord, amen. Lord, I pray um, this morning that as we listen to the words of Christ may they um, seep into our bones today maybe in, in a way that's way different if we if we've been a follower of Jesus for just for years may these words afresh like seep into us in a new way may there be new and deeper invitations to apply this verse to our lives today to walk and live into this verse and for those of us who are new to this church or to the Christian faith in general or just are very, very, very skeptical and have come here with a million questions, I pray that these invitations would be invitations to them as well with all of their demands, everything that they require, um, because in, a, in them is true life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I used to uh, think that social media was ruining the word follow. Um, we follow people. Uh, on social media to look into their lives, to stalk them pretty much, um, to relive, relive their beautiful or funny moments, and then we like it accordingly or whatever. And we do this from everywhere. Um, we follow people from public transportation, like buses. We follow people from like public parks, when you should be enjoying nature, you're like looking at other people's lives. We do it from public restrooms, that's gross, but you've done it and you need to stop doing that. Um, and just about every place we can get a signal, Um, we're on our devices, looking at other people, following them. But as I've thought about it, I don't know if social media has really ruined the word follow. I think maybe it's just tapped into something that has always been there in human sociology. Because thousands and thousands of people followed Jesus. They followed him. Um, they, They followed, and he was followed by men and women and even children. They, f- they flocked to him to see him do miracles, to witness healings, to hear his teachings, and they liked it. They liked him. They loved to follow him. But what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't let that, he doesn't just let that be a thing. He doesn't say, well, you can just follow me and just like, like my stuff. He doesn't let that be a thing. He, he, you can't just follow him from the comfort and, and the perspective um, of your own life as it is popping in to get some hit of peace or pleasure from Jesus, some wise word or spiritual thought, and this go and then just go on your way. Um, our, in our passage today, Jesus confronts this way of seeing him. He says that that way of following me is not a thing. Look at verse 34. He says this. Then he called the crowd. To himself, along with his disciples, he calls everyone who's following him. Now, the, the reason why he he divvies it up, he says, it says the crowds and the disciples. The disciples were the ones that Jesus himself called to follow him, that he might that they might be with him, that that he might teach them to be like him, and that he might eventually send them out to continue his ministry, to continue to do what he's doing. So, these people were in this like really tight apprenticeship to Jesus. But the crowd, where this giant group of people that followed Jesus, he went, they went to all of Jesus's events, showed up for all the times he was feeding like everyone miraculously. Like the crowd just kept on coming in droves. And what Jesus does, he calls both groups of people together to himself. And he says this, I want to lay out for you a vision of what, what following me really looks like. I want you to, I want you to see what it really means, what it really takes, what it really requires to be my disciple. See, now, some some history around this. A disciple is someone who is with, learns from, becomes like, and does what their teacher does. It was an ancient form of apprenticeship. Many spiritual and philosophical leaders had disciples. Jesus was not the first person to have disciples. And they would follow their, their rabbi. They, were, they would follow their teacher. And they would learn from him. They would, they, would, they would act like him and emulate him and imitate them and take on that, that person's way of life and their teachings and then become like their, their master. Jesus had disciples too. And what he was about to do is he's about to put the most demanding invitation on being his disciple. He goes, do you guys want to be my disciples? And that was a big thing. That was like a a huge thing. If some rabbi, especially a rock star rabbi like Jesus, who had tons of followers, if some rabbi, especially someone popular as Jesus said, do you want to be my disciple? Everyone would have been like, yes, we want to be your disciple. We want to follow you. We want to be on your, in your entourage. We want to be in the inner. We want to be like you. We want to be with you. Like we want to do the things you're doing. We want it all, yes. We want to be your, my, your disciple. So Jesus sets this really, really demanding invitation to discipleship. So he says this. He calls the crowd along with the disciples. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So being a disciple of Jesus requires a few things. The first thing it requires is desire. The first thing it requires is desire. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. It, it actually does require, desire. I think we underestimate this a bit. Some of us follow Jesus because that's just what we've done since we were kids. We've been in church our entire lives. It's just what we do. And if we don't do that, our mom will call us and go, why weren't you at church today? You didn't check in on Facebook or whatever at church? I know you weren't there. I'm not not there but there's no real desire to follow Jesus. Jesus turns to a large group of people who are following him, which I think it's appropriate to turn to a large group of people at a church and say, do you desire God? Do you desire Jesus? Jesus turns to a crowd of people who are following him and says, do you want to follow me? Do you really want to follow me? And I think this is a, a very fitting question for a room full of people at church because do you desire Jesus. That's where discipleship must begin. It must begin with a desire to be with Jesus. It must be a desire to want to learn Jesus, to want to know Jesus, to be with him, to become like him, and to, and to be like him in this world. Now, here's the thing. God is always the one to make the first move with, with this question. We desire Jesus only after we realize we come to wake up to the reality that Jesus desires us, that God is the great initiator, that we start to follow God when we realize that God has been following after us, that we start going after God when we realize that God has been coming after us, and that's, 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 a, that's a beautiful um, understanding of it, like once you realize that God has been after you, that God has been pursuing you, it's then that we respond with pursuing him, our desires for him. St. Augustine says it like this in his, um, his great poem, Late How I Love Thee. He says this, he, a couple of lines. He says, you called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I... Gasp, and now I pant for you. I tasted you, and I hunger and thirst. You touched me, and I burn for your peace. It's that thing, and I think that we underestimate that. Like, do we just, has, has he called us? Has he shouted at us? Has he broke through our deafness because this world can just give this, like, this subtle, numbing hum in our lives? Has God broke through that in our own lives to where we then, now, rasp and gasp for him and pant for him. Following Jesus begins with desire for him. And Jesus will give a very compelling reason why we should want to follow him, but it first starts with, do you want to? And then, the next thing it requires is gets a little bit more uh, daunting. Following Jesus requires more than just wanting Jesus. It requires denial and death. Denial and Look at verse 34. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, desire, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Here, Jesus gives the terms of being a disciple, the terms of following him. And and here's the thing, though, with this. Christians have made following Jesus so many things. And a lot of those things are typically about us about how Jesus gives us stuff, how Jesus saves us from bad and unwanted things, how we've made, we've made following Jesus into a subculture, how we vote. It, we've even made following Jesus into an industry. People make millions and millions of dollars off of Christians trying to follow Jesus. But when Jesus' words here, he, it cuts through all of the stuff that we've made following Jesus and brings us face to face with what Jesus himself said about what it means to follow him. And he says this, if you want to follow me, you must deny and you must die. You you must deny and you must die. The way that Jesus describes this is by saying to his followers, you must take up your cross. Now, this isn't, this shouldn't be easy to hear. When I say to you, take up your cross, there, there should be something about that that goes that that you would want to reject. Something in your in your inside of you that makes you want to reject that because that's a very difficult saying. Most of our lives are, try, are, are spent trying to protect ourselves from pain and live into pleasure. That's most of our lives. So this might seem like the furthest thing from anyone's New Year's resolution. Like, I want to die more this year. Like, no one wants that. No one signs up for this. Because what Jesus means by this is this. The, the cross, when Jesus says, take up your cross, the cross was an image of cruelty and pain and dehumanization. It was a picture of Shame. The cross was, a, was, was symbolized being hated, and it symbolized oppression, and it was reserved for the lowest class, uh, social classes of criminals. And it was so shameful and humiliating that Roman citizens were not themselves allowed to be crucified. It was that shameful. Today, we wear crosses around our neck. We wear crosses on our cheeks, um, like like that Alabama freshman did uh, the, during the championship game this last week. If you watched that this last week, he came out at halftime with like crosses on his cheek, which is cool. It's whatever, especially if you're a Bama fan, you're like, yeah, that was really cool. Um, but when I, rea- when I was watching the, the, national, the college national football game, I, was, I watched this kid with crosses on his face. I realized how far this symbol had come. It's come a long way, you know, the symbol of the cross. It went from uh, being a, a picture of pain and dehumanization and shame into, like, winning the national football title. Like, it's come a very long way. And when Jesus says to take up your cross, he's not referring to what the symbol would, become, would come to stand for. Because I know the symbol today doesn't stand for what it did. The symbol today, when we were a cross or on our cheek or on our neck, and I have no problem with that at all, it means this. It, it, it means victory to us. Jesus overcame sin, death, and the devil through the cross. The cross means victory. Jesus rose from the dead. He did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. The cross means victory. So we wear the cross as a sign of victory. I have victory in Christ and victory in his death on the cross. And so I wear a cross proudly, tattooed on my cheeks, around a necklace, somewhere. It's like the cross is victory. Now, yes, it is. But when Jesus said, take up your cross, he did not mean it to mean victory. He meant it to mean denial of self, choosing humiliation, even the dehumanization for the sake of the gospel, which might sound absurd to us. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians says the cross is foolishness. It's utter foolishness to those that don't understand it. Because what the cross symbolizes is this, this complete denial of self to going, I will be so humiliated that I will take up my own cross, which Roman um, uh, soldiers made the, the victim of the cross carry their own cross to their crucifixion, like to carry it themselves in shame. It, may, it meant to be hanging bloodied and naked, completely humiliated, completely naked on the cross. So struggling to breathe with everyone spitting at you and laughing at you. No matter if this was Jesus or not, like this is what crucifixion was. And Jesus takes this picture up. He's like, hey, do you want to be my disciple? And he's like, yeah, we want to be your disciple, Jesus. We want to follow you. You're like, the things you're doing is this, is this is where I'm going. I'm going to the cross. And anyone who wants to follow me must take up their own cross to follow me. And they would have been like, wait, what? You, you, I have to completely uh, choose the road of humiliation I have to choose the road of, of, like, completely denying myself? This doesn't make any sense. And I don't want to really over-spiritualize this, because when I say deny yourself, we have all these, like, maybe spiritual word pictures of what this means. One commentator says, the cruciform life is a countercultural life. Cruciform meaning um, a life formed around the cross. Cruciform is just a really, I think it's a very poetic way of saying it. Like the cruciform life is a life that's formed around the cross. Like Jesus says, take up your cross. I want my life to be formed in that way. So the cruciform life, one commentator writes, is a countercultural life of fidelity and love, generosity and justice, purity and promise keeping, nonviolence and peacemaking. Now, to, Now, keep that up there. To Jesus, these were exactly what the cross meant. It meant that he was, he had fidelity. He had faithfulness to the Father because the Father was calling him to give up his life for many. And so he, had, he was faithful to God, even to the end, even if it meant humiliation and death. This is what he was called to do, and so he did. He was was faithful, and it was an act of love. He did it out of love. It was the love of Christ that drew him to the cross. His love for the world. So it was both fidelity and love, and that, that itself took a lot of humiliation. That itself took a lot of commitment from him. That was rugged commitment to us. It also meant generosity and justice, that Jesus would give his life as an ultimate act of generosity, that he would choose to live a. A poor existence for the sake of the world. Like truly poor. That it meant justice. It meant I, uh, this, it, this means the justice of God. That I would die in place of sinful man and woman. Taking their penalty on myself. That's justice. It, was, it meant purity. It meant that he had to keep his life um, free from sin. That he can be a pure offering to God. He lived a pure life. It was promise-keeping. He kept his promise that this is what he came to do. It meant nonviolence. Jesus could have at any moment picked up a sword. Jesus could have at any moment called down angels to to destroy all of Rome and anyone who would try to oppress him. But he took the path of nonviolence. He did not pick up a weapon to defend himself. And it meant peacekeeping. He was keeping, ultimately keeping the peace by doing this. Now, for us, this is what cruciformity means for us. It will mean fidelity in the face of like, oh, this is a way easier path. It's a path of love and not love like that you and I would make up like, like the fluffy sort of like emotional love, but rugged commitment love to, a, to, our, to our faith, a rugged commitment of love to our community, a rugged commitment of love to your family. It means generosity and justice and purity and promise-keeping and nonviolence and peacemaking. Taking up your cross is really hard to do. Taking up your cross means, um, I I mean, even if you just pulled out the word purity, I I know that for some of us, we're like, I don't want to choose Jesus' life of purity when it comes to alcohol and when it comes to sex and when it comes to money. I just don't want to do it. And choosing to commit to that sort of way is a denial of yourself, and you know it. This is the demands of Jesus. Like you want to come out, you want to be my disciple. This is what it looks. This is what taking up your cross looks like. But what we often do is we often make like um, the more like just the regular situational difficulties in our life our cross to bear. We we say, well, an illness, my illness, my sickness is my cross to bear, or an injury is my cross to bear. Or like a difficult relative is my cross to bear or something like that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That is not your cross to bear. Cross bearing, cruciform life, is as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving your whole life to following Jesus. All of it. So let me say this. I don't think it's a bad thing to wear a cross around your neck or on your cheeks and your face or whatever. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think the image of the cross signifies, it should signify, a total claim on the disciples' allegiance and the total relinquishment of his resources to Jesus. When you wear a cross, if you have one around your neck right now or you have one tattooed on your body or you have one hanging in your bedroom, what that should mean is this. That should mean your total allegiance to Jesus. It's you reminding yourself daily, I live a life that's cruciform. I am shaped by my commitment to Jesus, and that might require defeat and shame and loneliness and pain and loss and humiliation or whatever but it's it's worth it because of this next thing that Jesus does here now, if you're following along with me at this point you're like, what in the why in the world would I do that why would i why would I voluntarily step into humiliation, or even like um, pain, or like this sort of commitment to Jesus, uh, following him in this way, why would I do that? And so what Jesus does next is, is pure genius and beauty. Jesus appeals to a moral logic. Jesus says, he has the audacity to say, um, I want everyone here, and we don't understand it because we've never seen anyone crucified. Jesus' first audience would have seen people crucified. Jesus has the audacity to say, if you wanna be my disciple, you need to take up a cross um, and humiliate yourself in death. And then he he has the, the audacity then to do that and go, and it makes sense. It actually makes sense to do that. And this is what he does. He says that this kind of denial and death to self is actually how you get true life. He says that the demand of following him in this life is what really brings you true life. Verse 35, for, or that that word could be because. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me because whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for your soul? I find this section really fascinating. It's a subtle paradox that we can miss, but this paradox is what makes this statement so great. Jesus says that we must deny ourselves and die, and then in the same breath, he says that we must take up our cross and follow. How in the world can you die and follow? How do you die and follow? How do you go, you must die, and then I want you to follow me? You're like, okay, wait, what? How do I die and then follow you? That, 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 there's a paradox there. There's a strange paradox, and in that paradox is true life. In that paradox is how we get to the integrated soul, is what he's talking about. In that paradox is the invitation to believe the gospel and become whole. What Jesus, must mean is that to follow him, something in us must die and something in us must follow. Something in us must die and something in us must follow him. That's what he must mean. Because when you're dead, you're dead. Something must die and something must follow. Several months ago, I was out for a walk with a spiritual mentor of mine. We're walking and we're talking about the integrated life. We're talking about a life where my, and it was, I was just I was doing some inner stuff with him for me personally, and I was talking about where my, how do I get to a life where my inner world and my outer world were integrated with my life with God? How can I, when things on my, the outside of my life are chaotic, how can I have inner peace and then bring my inner world back into my outer world? How do you do that thing there. I asked questions about being a man that can continue to grow in character and fidelity no matter what life brings at me. How do I do that? And the answers to those questions were a lot about knowing myself, healing from my past, spending time in examined prayer, and even, he said, therapy. And as we walked, I said, you know, I grew up in a church that was like semi-holiness, a semi-holiness church, right? Right? Holiness, like, every, you got to be set apart for God. Like, so holy, nothing's allowed in, in the church. Anything. Nothing, nothing that, you would, that would bring you pleasure is allowed. If it brings you pleasure, it's Satan. And, like, some of you guys know this, like, sort of thing. I grew up in a semi-holiness church. And it was preached pretty hard, the denial of self. The humility that, 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 that looks like self-forgetfulness. And a discipleship meaning that we are not people who follow our emotions, but our theology. Right? We do not follow our emotions. And so I said to him, I grew up in that sort of church, that sort of environment. It, I, I find it hard to hear what you're saying, that the, my deeper life with God is actually going inward and knowing myself. I find it at odds with denying myself. How do I know myself and deny myself? How do I like go in and know my emotions and bring my emotions in a healthy way before God? But at the same time, I'm supposed to deny myself. I'm, I, I don't really understand how I do this. How do you deny it yourself and know yourself at the same time? And he stopped walking. He just stopped. And he looked at me. And he said, that's, that's a great way to frame that question. I don't think I've ever thought of it like that. Then he said this. The denial of self is the denial of a false self so the true self can emerge. And I was like, and I think for that moment, I, I understood, I, I, I got it. I understood it like, um, I understood this wrestling that I've always had. That when, when, when I'm called to deny myself, there's, I'm, den- I'm, calling, I'm called to deny the false self. Um, Paul calls it the flesh. Um, Jesus here calls it the self. Um, so that the true self can actually emerge. Jesus calls this life or the soul. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. That something in us must be denied and die and something in us must be affirmed and bolstered. The something in us that, that, that must be denied and die is what Jesus, what, what um, uh, spiritual writers would call the false self. I think Thomas Merton called it the false self versus the true self. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And as you do that, Jesus says, for me and for the gospel, what will happen is that your true self will emerge. Now, guys, I'm not making this up. I am not. Uh, I, I, this is not just some feel-good, new-agey church hippie sermon, okay? Like, I know, I feel this way. Like, I'm like, guys, deny yourself so your true self can come out. You're like, oh, my gosh, this guy. I'm so sick of these TED Talk preachers. Like, what is he saying to me right now? I know, it sounds so silly. I know, but this is exactly what Jesus is saying. Um, That word life, that Jesus says, that your life, that your, do you you want real life, he says? uh, What good is it for man? Whoever wants to save their life, that word life, is the word psyche, where we get the word psychology. It means personhood. It means personality. It means your identity. It's like your core of your being. He's saying, do you, whoever wants to save their psyche, their self, actually saying, the Bible refers to it as a soul. Do you want to save your soul? Your soul. Jesus is concerned about your soul. That, that's why Jesus talks about the soul, his your soul in the very next breath. Um, John Orberg, uh, author of this wonderful, really, really great book called Soul Keeping, says that this is how he defines the soul. He says, your soul is what integrates your will, your intentions, your mind, your thoughts and feelings, your values and conscience, and your body, your face, body language, and actions into a single life. Your soul is the integration of your entire person. It's the integration of your will to your mind, to your body, and all of those are in 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 working order, and then in submission to God. And what Jesus is saying is, is, do you want to be an integrated self, an integrated person? Do you want to save yourself or save your soul? And this isn't, Jesus is not talking about when you die and go to heaven. He's talking about right now. Do you want to have an integrated life right now? What that takes, what that takes to have to save your life or your psyche or your personhood or your identity or your soul, what that takes is a denial of yourself or denial of your false self. Now, Jesus is not saying to ignore yourself. Jesus is not saying lose yourself to be lost. Forget your possibilities. That's Eastern philosophy. That is not the teachings of Jesus. Looking at verse 35, it's obvious that Jesus wants you to save your life. He wants you to save your life. He wants you to find your real self. And what Jesus is doing here is giving you the conditions of finding your true self. And the way of Jesus is counterintuitive to the modern view of life. The way we go about saving our own lives is by grasping and by hoarding and by keeping. We typically think that the way to save our lives is to hang on to everything that comes into our grasp. We save our lives by money and material things and people and relationships and family and experience. And these things define us. These things give us a self. These things give us a self-worth. And we hold on to all of them. And we clutch at them. And we grab onto them with everything that we have. We move to San Francisco to make a life for ourselves or a name for ourselves or to get involved in something that has meaning. So our life has meaning. And so we go after all these things. And Jesus is saying, if you clutch to this life and the things of this life, you will lose it. If you go after life to grab onto it and hold onto it, it'll slip through your fingers. If you try to gain the world and use every means available to you so you, so you can gain the world, you will lose yourself. And you know this to be true. This happens to countless people in this city. It might be happening to you right now, and you don't know how to stop the bleeding. Jesus gives us how. Jesus appeals to a logic we know to be true, a moral logic that is woven into every fabric of reality. David Brooks, um, an author, um, a writer, columnist for the New York Times, uh, professor at Yale or teaches at Yale, um, says in a lecture, he, t- he talks about um, how our, our society, our secular society, the world, runs on an on a economic logic um, where effort leads to reward and input leads to output and investment leads to profit. Right? That's just the way that we think that the secular world works. He says this, he says, but Jesus teaches an inverse logic, which is a moral logic not an economic logic. He says this. He describes the way of Jesus like this. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside of yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desires to get what you crave. Success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride. Failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. That inverse logic is the moral logic. There is no other. We are trained in our institutions and in our schools and our universities to think the world works on an a, on a, on a economic logic and we apply that to our soul and it, it just gets crushed. We go after everything and we get it and we're still not happy. We're still not satisfied. We're still not fulfilled. And you, know, we go after relationship, we go after money. We go after all the things like toast, and it just doesn't do it, right? It just doesn't do it. This is how the author and the philosopher, C.S. Lewis, put it in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity. He said, your real new self will not come as you are looking for it. That's basically sums up, I think, San Francisco, we're all looking for ourselves. It won't come that way. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. C.S. Lewis is saying this is the moral logic in all the universe. You know this to be true even if you're not a Christian. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. So, how does this work though? appealing. Jesus says, do you you want to follow me? You must deny yourself, your false self, that self that's striving and thriving for these things, and you must take up your cross and die to that and follow me. Be a disciple of mine, and then in that you will find true life. Now, how does that really work in our discipleship? I mean, you may be sitting here thinking that this sermon is for someone who is not a Christian or not following Jesus. An invitation to for to those people to know and follow jesus and you know i think some of that's true yes i hope that if you are new to christianity and you are exploring life with jesus that i hope that this this series sheds some light i hope that god's doing some work on your heart yes and if you have been following jesus for a long time this is for you because of this how does this work into our lives right now I mean, right now, how does this like make its way for those of us that have been walking with Christ? How does this make its way in? Again, uh, David Brooks in a different lecture. uh, He just gave recently at the Aspen Institute. It's on a podcast that you must listen to. It's so great. He talks about the stages of life. I think the podcast is called Conquering Your Second Mountain or something like that. In this lecture, he talks about the power of our commitments. And he says that We come to a point in our lives, somewhere in our 20s typically, that we're tired of keeping all our options open. We are tired of dating all kinds of different people. We're tired of weekends so packed full of stuff and options and experiences that by Wednesday we don't remember anything we did over the weekend because we had tons of freedom and a lot of stuff to do, but none of it was deep. So we get tired of that. It's so fun at the beginning, but there comes a point in our life, somewhere in our 20s, maybe in your 30s, if you like, you know, like, well, I'm really like going after it here or whatever. Somewhere there where it just gets old. Like keeping all of my options open is getting a little old. He says, at this time in our lives, we move towards making commitments. We move towards making promises. that, allow, that and He says this. This is what I found very fascinating. He says that allow us to become integrated and move us to achieve deep inward unity. He says limitless options just scatter your personhood everywhere and you're not a person. It's commitments that, that, that um, work its way backward into you to, be, to allow you to become an integrated whole person. He says that, it's on the screen, quote, a commitment is falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. That's so good. A, a commitment is going. I'm going to commit myself to this thing because I love it, and I'm going to build all of these um, this, this structure of behavior around it, to where when my love falters, these things, these commitments hold it in place. Still, we we don't we don't we typically don't think that way. We're like I like this until I don't like it anymore, and when I don't like it anymore, I'm going to leave. I will move. I will exit. It's, he says, commitment-making is a process of totally devoting yourself to another thing and then making a promise. He says, and every time you keep a promise, it's like a spoke and a wheel. And it strengthens the wheel. And every time you break a promise, it's like snapping a spoke in the wheel. And it weakens it. He says, a commitment forms your, our identities. He says, a commitment forms our character. Now, this is what I found interesting. I found it interesting that David Brooks chose this way to describe a person who becomes an integrated soul. This is the way he he says, this is how we become a whole person through our commitments. And I think it's interesting because I believe that Jesus is doing the exact same thing here. I think what Jesus is doing, he's saying that a commitment, a continued commitment to him and to the gospel, a rugged commitment to being a disciple of Jesus, and Jesus pulls no punches that it it will be very hard, this rugged commitment will integrate and save your soul. This will make you a whole person. This will make you into a, um, someone who your soul is alive. This will save you. I, I don't find it at odds at all that when people um, come to uh, study philosophy and they come to study virtue, that they back their way into Jesus. Because I think Jesus speaks the truth. By the way, David Brooks, I have heard, has backed his way into the Christian faith. I don't think that's an accident. I think when you start looking at the way life works and the kind of people of virtue that we want to be, you will find your way to Jesus. Because Jesus says things like this. You're like, oh yeah, that's the way the universe works. Oh, that's the way the world works right there. When I deny myself, I find myself. When I take up my cross and I look to Jesus, I have a soul. It is not just this prayer that you pray. It's not like a, um, I just pray a prayer and now I'm a Christian. It's like devoting yourself to Jesus forms your soul and you become a saved soul, an integrated soul, a whole person. And this is what we said this means. Because I, I want to repeat myself often. My, one of my commitments this year is just to s- say things over and over and over again. Because I don't want to assume that you know them. I don't, and I don't want to assume I know them. Because to be honest, I forget them. To be honest, I'll say something I'll like, I'll forget, I forgot my sermon from last week as well. Like I I don't remember things, so I need to say them to myself over and over again. So let me say what I what we said last year about what 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 discipleship of Jesus means. What are we what are we committing to? And this is what it means. It's on the screen. It means knowing Jesus, learning to follow him, taking in our life his life, his practices, his teachings meditating on them, building a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. That's that's what it means to take up your cross and follow him. Taking in the person of Christ in our life and then obeying Jesus. Bringing your life into conformity with all Jesus taught. What Jesus taught on money, what Jesus taught on the poor, what Jesus taught on how we build a life, what Jesus taught on human sexuality, what Jesus taught on all these things we take into our life and we begin to bring our lives into conformity with his teachings because we are followers of Jesus. And this will take a denial of self. This is keeping our moral lives in line with Jesus' teachings, practicing justice and charity in your life. That's what this means. And this itself, this invitation here is what it means to take up your cross and follow him. So if you read this verse of scripture and go, Take up your cross and follow him. Huh, did that like 13 years ago? Killing it. Like, that? no. That's not, that's not it. At all. Every time we read this, Jesus speaks today and brings us into deeper and deeper commitment to him as disciples. Um, uh, two weeks ago, I celebrated being a, a follower of Jesus for um, 23, Ash, three years? Four? Three? Okay, thank you. <laughs> she didn't want to make herself known. Anyway, um, <laughs> twenty-three years. A couple weeks, ago, I celebrated following. I mean, um, uh, yeah, celebrated following Jesus for twenty-three years. And when I when I read this verse twenty-three years ago, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What that meant for me then was to get rid of my drugs. Honestly, get rid of drugs and follow me. That's what. That's what the invitation was. Clear as as day. Like. Uh, Jesus called me, he's like, put away your drugs and follow me. I'm like, okay, that's a hard one. Um, can I sell them? <laughs> like, no, you can't sell them. Like, f- f- flush them down the toilet. I'm like, um, "Can't." It was, it was that, that was it. That was the struggle for me. That was the wrestling. So I did. I remember going and going. I taking my little box that I had, hit away and like, uh, everything gone. And that, for me, that was my commitment. And now I read this today and it's a deeper thing. It's, it's, it, it has to do with letting go of even some good things in my life so that greater things can emerge. I read this today and I'm still called, so for some of you, it might be really, really simple. Walk away from a relationship that you know is completely out of order of with God's will for your life. It could be you, like, get away, get, get rid of your drugs. It could just be re- like, re- like, those things are really hard, difficult things. I'm not minimizing those things. And those things might be like, in, like, for some of us, like the way that we get in to faith in Jesus. But for others of us, it's like these, these other things that are not, they're not as explicit. And we read these and they're deeper still. They're taking uh, justice of Christ into our lives in a way that's meaningful. And that denies ourselves. Like being just in San Francisco takes um, a lot of effort to serve our poor and then advocate for our poor and then live justly in our work where it's just cutthroat. That that invitation might not come at the very beginning. It might come as you're walking with you. And there's deeper invitation still to us always. But also, I wanna end like this. I think I love the fact that Jesus says, for me and the gospel. Because at the heart of the gospel is that Jesus loves us and he gave his life for us. And so what we're not doing here is we're, we're going into discipleship trying to earn our salvation. We're like, I'm doing the thing, and I hope I get to heaven. I hope that I get what Jesus promised. I hope I get this, and I'm doing it to earn it. No, no, no. Whoever gives themselves for me and for the gospel, and the gospel is that Jesus has taken our place out of love for us. He's taken our place, has died for our sin to make us like him, to redeem us, to, make, to bring us into his family. And so when we turn and trust, we know that we will be received by him. We know that he, when he calls, he's made a way for us to be made whole, that he's paid the penalty and the price for our sin, and he's a, he made his way to us. So we believe the gospel. So let's pray. Let's ask God to... Um, to work this into our, into our church right now, like right now. I, I know there's a bit of rust uh, kind of movement around, just hold still for just half a second as I pray. Lord God, thank you for your glorious promise of, of, of a saved soul for those of us who would deny ourselves. And I can't even imagine what the spirit of the living God is doing right now in this room. When Jesus, you say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I know there's been people here that have been following you for 20 something years. And that call is something different than it was even five years ago. And I know there's people here that are just very, very, very new to this whole thing. And right now, you're calling them to follow you and whatever that entails, whatever that means right now, and they know it, they know it. I believe that you speak. The Spirit of the living God speaks. So would you speak to us now? And then I pray in all our different ways that we would respond to you. Through kneeling, through standing and lifting our hands, to getting prayer, receiving communion, all these different various ways of just taking a step towards you in faith. And so, Lord, I I thank you that you've met with us, and I trust that you are calling all of us, everyone in this room that can hear me, to yourself. I believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.